You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I am your host, Mike White. Joining me, of course, is Mr. Rob St. Mary. I take care of the place while the master is away. This may be the first time that we've done this. It's uh, kind of a sequel episode, not a uh, sequel to a film, but a sequel to an episode, which we did all the way back in January 2012. On there, we discussed the classic film Manos, the Hands of Fate, which I believe translates from the Spanish as Hands, the Hands of Fate. And the fundraising efforts that were going on at that time from Ben Salave to restore the film to its former glory. So we are back to talk about the restoration and other fun Manos-related stuff. We've got some interviews to play for you and, I don't know, maybe a little bit of conversation. I, I think we were pretty exhaustive when it came to our first episode. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, it's always fun to talk about it. And uh, to be honest, it's one of those films that uh, continues to grow with every single year. Hard to believe that um, next year it'll be 50 years old and we're talking about some film that some guy shot on a budget of about $1.35. In the first interview we're going to play, we're going to be talking to Jackie Naiman, who's uh, known to most people as Debbie, the little girl in uh, Manos, uh, whose dad was the master, uh, not the character, but the man who played the master is her father. Uh, I like at one point she says something about how they're teaching Manos as how not to make a film, and that's totally your line oh, yeah. from that first episode. <laughs> yeah, totally is. I mean, that was the thing that I learned uh, in talking about on that Manos episode that we did. I have said as far back as when I used to watch Mystery Science Theater and got interested in uh, making film that basically the best film school is mystery science theater because they keep pointing out what all the errors are. So, um, you know, learn their mistakes. So you don't make them yourself when you're making a movie to the point of like even bad credit sequences. True. I was like, what is it? Is it, it's not cave dwellers. I can't remember what it is. Cable? The, uh, yeah, not cave dwellers, okay. but I, the credits, it's like half the screen is black, so Joel like stands up and he's <laughs> looking over the edge. <laughs> I remember, uh, what was it? Um, I think it was Ega or something. And it's like, we bring you this image of a flower or something like that. It's like, uh, focus, please, focus. Yeah, just things like that. I mean, it's just, um, it's all the little tips and lessons that you can learn by, like I said, just learning from other people's mistakes. So that, that way you don't make them. Although you will make some mistakes, but it's um, it, it's always good to figure out, I think, why certain pieces of art work and why others don't. And I think that when we often talk about cult film, and you know we have an interest in that, we have an interest in sort of uh, out culture and why certain things work and why, you know, when they probably shouldn't. There's one thing that you learn is that you can't really manufacture cult like when right. people try to make a film that's a cult film, uh, it doesn't work. That's why, as much as um, Tommy Wiseau will, you know, jump up and down and say, "I knew exactly what I was doing." No, you didn't. You <laughs> you made a film that, just by your sheer ineptitude and ridiculousness, um, somehow caught on. Because if you 
hadn't have put those elements in in that particular manner and it resonated in a particular way, uh, it would just be in your closet somewhere and no one would have an interest in it at all. There's no way that anyone would ever think to shoot on both video and film at the exact same time. Unless there's some sort of madness and, yeah, sheer ineptitude going on there. It really is something. But that's The Room. This is Manos. So how about we go ahead, play the first interview here with Little Debbie herself, talking about the restoration, talking about her dad, and talking about the future of Manos. How old were you when you were in Manos? Uh, well, it's the summer of 66, and I turned seven during that process. So I was six at the beginning, but, you know, closer to seven. Six and three quarters, maybe? Uh, yeah, well, my birthday was in July, and we were filming, uh, like, May through July. So, yeah. What do you remember about being on the set and how it came together? I realize I'm probably more observant than a lot of children, but I think a lot of kids at that age are pretty pretty observant when it's something that's important to them, and that was a really important event for me. Yeah, I, I remember a lot. I remember John Reynolds, and I remember thinking that, um, you know, when Hal would say, we'll fix it in the lab, he said that a lot by the way. And I remember wondering how that was possible. <laughs> Do you remember how you got cast in that? Oh, yeah. My dad uh, came home one day because he was uh, doing community theater. And he came home one day and he said, I'm going to be in a movie and we need a little girl. Would you be interested in being that little girl? And And I was a really shy kid and I'd never thought of anything like that up to that point so I said I don't know and he said uh you know with uh child psychology said well that's okay honey we'll just find another little girl (laughs) and so I said um I'm it I was in when it comes to Hal Warren how was he uh to work with well for me personally it, it wasn't until just a few years ago that I realized He actually had other children because my feeling of him was that he'd never been around a child. I felt like a prop, you know, and you can see it in the movie where he picks me up like a sack of potatoes. (laughs) You know, it was um, stand here, do this, do that. He wasn't unkind in any way, but, you know, in, in retrospect, I realized he was just doing his job, you know. He didn't have time to... um, you know, play games or try to put anybody at ease because he didn't really do that for anybody. What about John Reynolds? What was he like? Well, I remember him as a really sweet guy. He he was um, he was shy and and he was kind of quiet and introspective from my point of view. But you know, during the down times, I remember him coming and hanging out with me a little bit while I was watching what was going on uh, in front of the little house there. He would entertain me with little, like, little magic tricks, you know, simple magic tricks with coins, that kind of thing. And and uh, he would do little pratfalls and, 
and that kind of silly, you know, I remember, I just remember him being a really sweet guy and my dad was friends with him and he just remembers him as being, um, you know, pretty deep, very deep and uh, very troubled, very serious. He was a serious actor. I think Manos <laughs> might have been kind of a, I don't know, surprise to him that that he was involved in something like that, that he'd gotten into that. As for the shooting of the film, what do you remember about being on set? And it seems like some of it was at night, so obviously it was past your bedtime if you were six. But it was summertime, so I didn't have any school or anything. You know, a lot of it was at night, but the truth is the whole filming was only done in, um, oh, just like maybe a few weekends and, uh, and then some evenings. And uh, it went pretty late. I mean, the days were really long. Um, when I was there, I would just kind of hang out. I was pretty easy kid. I was just happy to be there. I was like, just happy to be here. So I'd poke around. I'd just do my own thing and and hang out and kind of observe. What was it like working with your dad on set? Well, we were never in the same scene, but I was there a lot because if we were filming me on the same day that we were filming him, then I was there because he was my ride, you know. I've always known my dad, when I was growing up, I've always known my dad to be in theater, and he was always different characters, and I was very invested in that. I helped him with his lines. I uh, I was always at the theater behind stage or in the audience, you know, I was one of his, well, probably was his biggest fan. And, uh, so being there was just really cool for me and him playing other characters like that was just normal to me. I mean, my dad was so many different characters. He'd come home as Abraham Lincoln or, uh, Don Quixote or Matt, you know, or, uh, King Arthur or, you know, any number of, uh, of characters, so so I was very um, used to even at, even at that age. In the film, there are two dogs. Was one of them yours? Yeah, the Doberman Shanka. That was our uh, family pet, and then the Poodle was Hal Warren's dog. Is it your voice in the film, or did somebody post you? No, all the voices were dubbed. Actually, they were dubbed because the film or the camera didn't shoot sound and so everything was dubbed in a sound studio in Dallas after the fact and and you have to realize Dallas is like seven eight hundred miles from El Paso so the people that dubbed the voices had to travel and as a result the only people that had their own voices in the film were uh, John Reynolds the sheriff Hal and my dad and all the women and me were dubbed by one woman in the sound studio, and she was in Dallas already. I, I never would have guessed that it was all one woman doing all those voices. He was pretty talented, if you think. Yeah. You know? And so, you know, I'll do a little segue here. I'm writing a book, Debbie Reveals All. It's the behind-the-scenes story of Manos to Hands of Fate. And it, and it covers everything, you know, on the set and uh, Hal Warren, uh, where he came from, and how the cast came together. I mean, they actually all came together from one play, most of them. And then where Manos went after it disappeared, and the premiere before that, and 
anyway, it's going to be a pretty good book. <laughs> and uh, I'll cover all that. After it premiered, and I, I love those photos, I think it may have been you or somebody put up on the, uh, there's a Facebook page out there for Manos fans, and uh, was just wondering, did you ever think about it again after it premiered? Because I think it died pretty much a, an isolated death, right? It really didn't get passed around too much, really didn't get too much notice for it? Yeah, it was, uh, it was distributed a little bit. For about a year, and then it uh, it disappeared. It was um, there's some bootleg copies floating around, and and then it got into VHS, and um, you know slowly till MST found it in 1993. But in all that time, because it was such a significant event in my childhood, and one that I I held on to those memories it it really was the most significant event of my childhood and i held on to it because we never saw the film after that we never got a copy you know uh, after the premiere we never saw it and my family by good reason wanted to just forget about it so nobody talked about it but i didn't forget and i looked for it once i became a teenager I started uh, researching a little bit, calling around. and But at that time, of course, there was no internet. That was the 70s. And I never located it. And I gave up. I, my high school friends can still tell stories about how uh, I used to talk about it in high school. I tell them stories about this movie I was in. And then all of a sudden, 1993, it pops up. And my dad called me because... He was an MST fan, and he was taking a nap in his easy chair on a Saturday morning in January 1993, and he heard some familiar music, and he opened his eyes, and there he was. And then he called me, and that's how we found it. I give Joel and the guys a lot of credit for bringing it back, because it would have just been gone forever. I want to know, what was it like the first time that you saw it again after all these years, and especially seeing it with the addition of the MST3K guys? I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. But at the same time, you know, when I got my copy, I was just so relieved to have found it that uh, I actually got a bootleg copy because I called the HBO offices directly, and I, I talked to this guy who sent me a copy, and... I watched it once, and I put it away because, you know, it's really bad. <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't want to share it with anybody because, you know, it's still, it's really bad. And, and any time I did share it with somebody, they reminded me of how terrible it was. So I didn't, it wasn't something I wanted to put myself out there for, you know, with my friends. But when people started talking about it, I just had to chime in, mostly because there was so mi much um, misinformation that I kind of made it my quest to clean that stuff up. And as a result, you know, um, it's just grown and grown. And uh, I've been so blessed and honored to be part of that. I enjoy it very, very much. I was going to ask you about that. What's some of the um, strangest rumors and misinformation out there about it? That everybody's either died or mysteriously disappeared because clearly, you know, I'm here. So is my dad. 
Um, you know, Diane Marie, who played my mom, she's still doing great. Um, you know, and the people that have died, well, hell, the movie's almost 50 years old. You know, people get old. So, you know, there were some accidents and such, but the truth is the only the only suicide or unexplainable death really would be John Reynolds. Like why why would he do that? But beyond that, you know, it's all pretty normal. And then there's just so much about oh, I know, a good one is that John Reynolds became addicted to painkillers and then killed himself because of that, because he was wearing the leg braces wrong. Well, he wasn't wearing them wrong. They weren't that painful. And uh, prescription painkillers weren't that weren't the drug of choice in 1966. And the movie was shot in less than two months, like more like six weeks. And you don't get you you don't get addicted to drugs and kill yourself in six weeks. You know, just stuff like that. It's just ridiculous. So what are your thoughts when you hear that Ben is working on this restoration? How did that news come to you? And then what did you think about it when you heard about it? Well, I met Ben way back early in the early, early days when he first started. We connected and and then uh, I don't know if you guys have read the Playboy article that just came out, but it touches a little bit on that and how uh, these other people thought they had some rights to it and, and and bullied him. I was all part of that in terms of Ben had contacted me and I was doing the sequel with uh, Rupert Munch <laughs> and who's not really Rupert Munch. I don't know. He started announcing to everybody that he was going to do a restoration and I'm like, well, wait a minute. This guy Ben's doing a restoration and I don't know, it's just so strange, you know, he was uh, actually making up all this stuff, but Ben was was moving forward, and I totally supported Ben, and kind of, I would say the falling out with the sequel and everything went, went around that, because I thought that, that the guy doing the sequel, I could see how nuts he was getting, and I really liked what Ben was doing, and so I was given a choice uh, to be in the movie or not be in the movie. He told me he could go get another little, another Debbie. I said, good luck with that. I'm the, I am Debbie, you know? <laughs> so, so anyway, the sequel didn't happen and Ben's restoration went forward and Ben and I both had to field a lot of threats and a lot of, for, of lawsuits and, and all kinds of crap. I just always followed his lead and I just, it's awesome. I love the restoration. I love what he's done with it. I've uh, been honored to go to uh, several screenings around the country with Ben. I just love it. I support it totally. I hope I get to go to more screenings. They're a blast. But when you first heard that someone wanted to do a restoration on the film, did you think, come on, really? Or did you think, no, sure, why not? No, I thought it'd be great because... I remembered it from the premiere. I remembered it on the big screen the first way I saw it. And and as much as I see that, you know, without without MST, Monos never would have come back at all. But it was still like watching it through 
a muddy pond. And uh, it was so further edited and cropped, and you just couldn't see it. Even when you saw the the other version, it was more like a bootleg VHS version. And again, just copy after copy, and it just didn't look right. So seeing the restoration for the first time, first time I saw it was in El Paso at the El Paso Film Festival in, I think it was 2011, on the big screen in Blu-ray, and it was amazing. It was just like, it just took me back, seeing it like it was the the way it was meant to be seen. In fact, it's even better, <laughs> but it's great. It's really great. Because then you can see how it was meant to be. It's it's still a bad movie, but you can see the flaws a lot more clearly. Like my dad's jeans rolled up under the robe. You can see that. You can see the can of lighter fluid behind him after he burns Torgo's hand. You can see the mistakes much more clearly. You were talking about that sequel project. Was that the Rise of Torgo one? Uh, no, no. The Rise of Torgo is the prequel. Okay. And that's by David Roy, and it's still coming out. He's just about done with it. He had some problems in the lab, (laughs) I guess, but um, he's—I think he's done a great job. I can't wait to see that one. The sequel was 2010, and it was um, the Search for Valley Lodge, and about a fifth of it got filmed until uh, the director ran out of money and I would say pretty much burn every bridge he crossed, <laughs> including mine. Yeah, I mean, he he had quite an elaborate thing going. You know, it's too bad he didn't get it done. So, But there's another sequel happening, and I'm part of it. We're just getting started with it, and it's called Manos Returns. And uh, my dad's actually going to reprise his role as the master in it. And how far along are you on on that one? Do you know when it may be out? We're just getting started. Right now we're doing a t-shirt campaign. And the purpose of that is to get the funding to pay for my dad's scene so that we can get that filmed. Because we're going to do that first and get him done and out of the way while his health is good because he's almost 80 and then we'll be doing a kickstarter campaign starting next month in november but it'll be a while i mean we haven't started filming yet but we do have the script and we have all the people and things in place including our website and uh, like you said the t-shirt campaign at monosreturns.com how has the fandom been for you and your dad? I mean, it's, it's got to be kind of interesting to go places and now be recognized as, you know, for a movie that is so many years old. It's really interesting because I'm just kind of always gone with the flow. I never expected a lot out of it. I just want to do, I just enjoy it so much. But when I do have the opportunity to go to events, it's so interesting. I I mean, I'm just Jackie. I'm just the artist that does my thing, you know. And and my my dad finds it more interesting as it goes along. He can't really believe the fandom, but 
but I enjoy it a lot. And uh, people are, I don't know, I just don't know how to explain it because this is pretty new to go to places. And when people realize who you are, sometimes they, they actually burst into tears and they're so excited. And um, I just, I don't know. It's trippy. It's really trippy. I'm trying to understand Manos myself, and I understand it through the fans. So I love connecting with people, and I love hearing what they have to say about it. But my dad's enjoying it, too. Um, I I gave, I bought him a copy of Playboy, and I gave it to him last week. So I really look forward to hearing what he thinks of that article in, about Manos. Truly, he's reading the magazine for the articles. Yeah, well, I hope he goes beyond the article, but... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he's he's reading it for the article. <laughs> you know, I, I think you may have answered it, but it's almost as you were saying, it's almost fifty years ago that the film came together and I was just wondering over those years, since you were able to reconnect with it through Mystery Science Theater, you know, how how do you feel about the film? And also, when you talk to your dad about it, how does he feel about it? Has it uh, has it grown on you? Uh, do you have a new appreciation for it? Is it different for you? Oh, yeah. It's different all the time. It's continually evolving. Do you know that they teach Manos in film schools as everything not to do in filmmaking? So many of the fans are young filmmakers. They're so creative. I've seen the most amazing... Um, creative endeavors come out of Manos that are inspired by it. And I'm an artist, and my dad's an artist, and we can appreciate that creativity. And so it really is an honor, and I think it's he's he's realizing it himself now, that it's a real honor to, to be part of something that's such a source of inspiration. I mean, Manos has a stage play that was in Portland. It has... Well, Rachel Jackson, who you're going to interview for Mono's Hands of Felt. There was a rock opera in Chicago. Uh, Mono's uh, Rock Opera of Fate. And right now there's a, a guy in New Orleans creating a burlesque Mono show that I, um, that I hope to attend in the next few months. Um, but it just goes on and on. Oh, and the game. Uh, by Freak Zones, the Monos game on uh, iPhone, and now we, I believe, it just keeps going. It's gone into mainstream culture through um, being mentioned on How I Met Your Mother and Sally Forth cartoon. I mean, on and on. I just can't even remember all the things, but it's astounding to me, and it's astounding to Dad that this thing. We just keep expecting it to fizzle out. We're just enjoying it in the moment, but it's not. It just keeps growing. And so um, I'm just, personally, I'm just riding the wave. And I just consider myself the, I, I, I give my dad the information, you know, as stuff comes in. Because he doesn't want to be in the public eye, but I have to say he really is enjoying it. The master approves. The master wouldn't approve. I'm Torgo, and I came to get down. 
of the place while the master is away. Jackie Naiman, better known as Debbie from Banos, The Hands of Fate. And up next, we thought that we would give you a chance to understand what it's all about to, uh, I guess, um, stick your hand inside Torgo. Oh, God, that sounds so wrong. Yeah. So uh, Rachel Jackson is uh, one of the creators, matter of fact, I believe the lead creator of Manos, The Hands of Felt, a puppet version, uh, in a way, of Manos, The Hands of Fate. Such a clever retelling of the film and the side story, the very fictionalized type side story <laughs> of the film. I mean, and just such a loving homage to so much of that movie. And I like the puppet designs, I have to say. Oh, they're so good. Yeah. And so if you like anything like an Avenue Q or any of that kind of stuff, or just like Manos in general, you're going to definitely want to check that one out. I'm Rachel Jackson, and I'm a puppeteer. I have created the crazy puppet musical thing known as Manos the Hands of Felt. How long have you been into puppeteering, and how did you get into it? I got into puppeteering about eight years ago now, I think it is. There's a fringe theater I work with here in Seattle. Their managing director calls them the the cheapest MFA you can get, um, because if they already know you and trust you as a company member, um, they're very willing to let you sort of learn on the job, because they can't pay you enough money to be, you know, to demand that you're a professional. So they had a show that needed three puppets built for it. And I happened to be free and said, you know, I've always loved puppets. I'd love to give this a try. I loved it. And my next gig approached me in the lobby and was like, oh, you're a puppeteer. Hey, I'm doing an improvised version of Labyrinth. And I need puppets and improvisers come be in my show. So, so it just kind of completely took off from there. I thought everybody that got into puppeteering used to make puppets when they're like eight years old. Not so much. No, no. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to swear that I never made a puppet when I was little. Um, but, well, okay. I do remember way back in elementary school, some puppet builders came and taught us a workshop. So I did, I did build a puppet for that. And then I built another puppet after that for a project. And then later I turned that puppet into a Hitler puppet and gave a history report with it because I was bored. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's so, yeah, Hitler gave his own little chat about the life of Hitler in puppet form. It, it was a lot of fun. So it has definitely gone on for more than just nine years. Yes, yes. But that's, that's really when I just started doing it. I mean, you know, I went to school and got my theater degree and then I started being, trying to be a professional actor and all that fun stuff. And I've worked admin at various theaters and, but, but yeah, it was it was eight, nine years ago that it became the thing I do all the time. The thing that like my magic feather, like for Dumbo, the, the thing that kind of brings everything together and, and feels like the thing I should be doing. I want to ask you about your acting career. There's something on your CV that I definitely need to know more about. Can you tell me the story behind the Scottish ninjas? 
The Scottish Ninjas, it's it's a web cartoon that these awesome guys, Rob and Bo, I, I think they said they created it um, when taking a class together at Community College. They were the guys that sit at the back of the room and don't pay attention. Um, that makes sense. And they yeah, they came up with the idea of ninjas who were Scottish. Um, and a, a drunken master who, who um, he got the spirit of a ninja into him because he drank a whiskey bottle he found on the beach. I got connected to them because <laughs> I was in a short film a bazillion years ago where it took the film a long time to come out. Like it got lost in some sort of development hell or they had to recast the two main actors or something. But my part just kind of stayed in the can because I'd, I'd done it and they weren't replacing me. But I, I, when I saw they were replacing some actors, I just kind of assumed I got edited out and, and that was, you know, that was just the thing I did. And I got paid and then I went home. But yeah, that eventually came out. And the director of that, Wade, he contacted me and he said, I have these friends doing this this webcomic, The Scottish Ninjas, they've lost their woman voice. But yeah, they, you know, they had the recording studio set up in the closet of their house at the time. So, so yeah, they, they recorded me doing some lady voices and um, they're awesome guys. They're hilarious and, and I like them and they like me. So yeah, the next time they had a, a script, they, they called me up and they're like, let's see how many different lady voices we can get you to do. So, yeah. So The Scottish Ninjas is this beautifully violent film. It's, it's a, what they say it's uh, Kill Bill meets Brave heart um but animated when was the first time that you ever saw manos the hands of fate first time i saw manos the hands of fate was when i was in high school the guy i was dating had introduced me to mst3k and manos was was one of the episodes that we saw and how did that kind of germinate into the hands of felt Many years went by, woo, um, and uh, yeah, that that relationship long over. I think we dated for like a month tops. Um, fortunately, the show is good, so it last outlasted the relationship. Yay! <laughs> yeah, fast forward years later, um, I was in a puppet company, and it was my turn to come up with a show. So I was kind of deciding what I wanted to do, and and my husband and I were just riffing off of puppetizing uh, titles. Um, Something like, you know, that game they play on At Midnight, Hashtag Wars. I, I think it sort of was similar to that. So, yeah. So, I looked down and saw my... Um, it's one of the MST3K Essentials pack. And it's the one that's a double pack of Manos and Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Which I believe was out because it was almost holiday time. I think it was like late November. And so, you know, it was time to watch Santa Claus Conquers the Martians because Christmas... And so I looked down and said, Manos, the hands of felt. And, you know, we both had a good laugh. And who knew it would turn into anything else? But, but kind of as soon as I said it, I saw a picture of the master puppet in my head. You know, it was like, oh, that's what I would make him look like if he were a puppet. Um, and then I went to sleep and I woke up in the morning and said, oh, you know what? The really long wife fight could squish together with like the ballroom joke scenes from the Muppet show. Um, and just, and that's how you would make that work. And like, just ideas kept occurring to me. And so, so this thing that started as a joke just completely wouldn't die. And this is, this was right around Christmas time, 2010, just to, to put it in time and space for you. 
I made a transcript of the movie. Um, and so, yeah, I took that was my writing project because um, I'm from the Midwest. So I usually go home for Christmas for a few days. Um, so that was my project on the plane um, writing the germ of the idea, November 2010. And we put it up in April of 2011. So like five or six oh, months. Wow. Yeah, yeah, pretty quick. Uh, pretty, pretty quick turnaround there. What I saw with the 2014 video of the performance, how close is that to what originally ran in that uh, that April performance? Those are actually pretty close. Um, the the original staging is pretty close to the film we eventually made. Um, the there are two really big differences. Um, are some of the cast is different. Um, like right. like someone moved to Australia. <sighs> you know things, little things like that. <laughs> the nerve! I know, right? And couldn't just come back for for the stipended show. Yeah, eyes rolled. Um, and uh, the puppets are a lot of the puppets are different. Not all of them, um, but when we first put it on, because we did it so quickly, we couldn't make all of the puppets specifically for the production. So we pulled a lot from stock that we had and just kind of dressed them as well as we could. Um, but, but for the, the movie version, because I was, because I had kickstarted it, um, part of that goal was to have enough money and time to build the puppets to match the movie. Um, so, so yeah, new cast and new, I guess I could just have said new cast, both felt and flesh. Ta-da! The puppets look amazing. Thank you. The Torgo one, especially. Yes. Yes. I, I, and I have to admit, I did not build Torgo. Um, I did, I didn't build all of the puppets. There were three of us that worked on the puppets for the show. Um, and that, that was, uh, Paul Velasquez who played Torgo also built Torgo. And yeah, he, I agree. He's just gorgeous. I love him. Paul does a terrific voice for him. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That was actually back in 2011. That was, I think one of his, not his first acting gig ever, ever. If you've listened to the commentary track, he, he revealed to us that um, he was a, a was a ringmaster for a cowboy circus in kindergarten or something like that. But it was his first um, on stage live performance since he was an adult. Apparently, the idea of doing both a kind of direct performance of Manos and then telling the off-screen story and bringing that into making of the movie—brilliant. Brilliant Thank stuff. You. Thank you. That was kind of fun at the first read. And by fun, I mean, I confused people. Um, I had to, to do some work with just the formatting of the script to make it clear to the actors when we were doing the movie and when we were making the movie, if that makes sense. When we were actually within the movie and when we were in the scenes where where we were doing the back behind the scenes stuff. I am so glad that that worked. That's and I, I got good advice on that. And I, I'm thankful to my bandmate, um, also named Michael, because he gave me that advice after after listening to me talk about the project. He, he observed because I was chewing on whether to just do mono straight up or whether to combine it, um, which is what I eventually wound up doing. Um, and I was afraid of overcomplicating it, because <laughs> I do that. And and he, he told me, he said, when you talk about this, you talk about the craziness of Hal Warren way more than you talk about anything else. He's like, so that seems to be what fascinates you. So I'm going to advise you to run in that direction. And, and yeah, so I did. Hal Warren just becomes like this... Shakespearean character. I like how he turned out. I don't. I don't know if he would like himself in puppet form or not. I hope so. It's all in good fun. So you know, I obviously have a lot of fondness for the movie too. And having the two Hal's, another stroke of brilliance. <laughs> Thank you. That 
Um, that, that was actually a solution that kept me from having another location. Um, so so that, that's actually how that wound up happening. And again, I don't know if it was the way that I was shot. I think it, that definitely helped out with it. I wasn't sure if you're actually using a mirror or using two puppets. At least at first. Hooray! Oh, that wow! That's that's good to hear. Thank you. That's I. I'm gonna. Yeah, I will pass that compliment along to um, pressing pictures because they they did all of our our camera work. Um, thank you. Yeah. Well, and plus the puppeteers who were they because they did it that way every night with the the empty frame and the the two puppets working um, as much in sync as they could manage. How did the decision to make the dog into someone playing the dog come about? Peppy, in this case, being a boy in a dog suit, is a deep inside joke callback um, that that maybe five people in the world actually got, but it made me happy, so I wrote it that way. In the play that we had done right before this one, the, the puppet company I was in at the time, there was a character named Donald who got eaten by a dog, basically. Um, and it was startling because it wasn't, no one expected it to be that kind of show. Um, you know, there are these cute little boy puppets um, having a playground adventure, and then one of them actually dies. And, and so um, that, yeah, that really, really disturbed people. Um, but yeah, so I liked the, since, since Manos already had a dog in it that died, spoiler alert, um, I, I thought it would be funny to put Donald in there and have him in a dog suit. And then, yeah, the kind of, the rest of it just kind of flowed from there. So, so yeah. Now when it comes to the show itself, does it have like a regular run and, you know, you, you do it for however many months and then it doesn't play for a while and then comes back or how does that kind of actually work? It's had, Three different runs uh, so far. There was there was the original one, um, and then we took it to Bumbershoot that same year, um, which is our big music festival here. Um, but it also has a theater stage and a comedy stage and all that fun stuff. And then, yeah, then we let it rest until um, the Kickstarter and filming it came to fruition. But yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't have a regular run. It's just something that I've brought back a couple of times at this point. Um, and I could totally see bringing it back again someday, for sure. Um, just not, I don't want it to be the only thing I do, so I try not to do that too often. Now, I know that there's a an extra on the, the upcoming Blu-ray mm-hmm. That has something to do with the show, but what uh, what exactly is that? Is that the whole thing again, or or is that a like a shortened version, or is it a documentary about what you're doing, or how, what is that like? First, I should say I haven't seen it yet, although I'm going to get to see it soon. Hooray! Um, but that, as far as I understand, that is mostly just an interview with me about the process and the show. I think there is some footage from the movie in it, but but it's mostly just it's like four minutes, so it's not super long but i think it's it's hilariously it's a conversation because um the timeline for that week um back in 2013 sif seattle independent film festival um they screened the restored manos here in seattle the same week that we opened the second run of manos the hands of felt so so Ben was here and Jackie was here and and Ben was like, hey, could I interview you? Maybe maybe it would be a great, you know, extra for the, the Blu-ray. And I'm, you know, I said, of course. But at that point, I was just coming off of Tech Week and about to go into opening night. So I question how coherent I am in this interview. I'm, <laughs> I'm really curious to see how insane I'm going, going to seem to myself because I, you know, Tech Week... 
I I hadn't slept much and I was trying to pull everything together and I'm also in the show. So yeah, I was, it was probably, I, I assume I was really tired and, and perhaps a little insane, but, but yeah, it's mostly an interview. Perhaps that makes it a better interview. I don't know. Now, was that the first time that you met Jackie? No, that was the second time I got to see Jackie. The first time I met Jackie was actually down in Portland during the live production of Manos, The Hands of Fate that they did there in early 2013. Uh, yeah, they invited me down to to watch that, and then Jackie was in the show, so I got to meet her afterwards. Was she playing Debbie in that show? She was. She was, or rather, even better, she was playing the voice of Debbie. Yeah, it's like um, cosmic irony or, or you know, karmic payback. She she got to to voice a doll of of Debbie, just just like she got dubbed over so many years ago. In the show, you play Debbie. Yes, right? yes. <laughs> so, what was that like meeting the woman who you were? playing in real life god that gets so complicated i know right yeah and because that's the thing i'm not even playing her really i'm playing a puppet version of the lady who is voicing her over i was certainly nervous i was hoping to hell she would like it and not be really mad at me so so fortunately she did thank goodness um but yeah i was definitely a little nervous to have her see it for the first time i was a little less nervous because mostly i'm mocking the voiceover and that isn't that isn't jackie at all so so that's you know Mostly, I'm just going bicycle. Made it easy to memorize my lines. But fortunately, uh, Jackie loved Puppet Debbie, and in fact, I have a picture somewhere of her with Puppet Debbie, which is just cute. So, so yeah. So, what was the reaction to the show over the times that you've done it? The reaction to the show has been really great, actually. It was um, honestly a pleasant, a really, really pleasant surprise um, because when I did this, I had no idea whether anyone would actually enjoy it or not. Um, I knew that I thought it was funny, and and the director, my husband, he thought it was funny, and about half of the cast really thought it was funny, and the other half of the cast wasn't so sure about it. You know, they were like, we're, you know, we're doing this, but I don't know if people are going to get this or if it's too weird, you know? So until we got it in front of an audience, we actually didn't know if there was an audience for it, which is funny now. Cause like, like from fast forward to now where we've had the restoration and, and we have all of this, you know, we, the, the playboy article and we have all this interest in Manos now and people are actually saying things in the, the dark pit of despair that is is the internet comment section. You know, people will say things like, oh my God, they're just trading on Manos because it's popular. And it's like, back when I wrote this, it I did not consider this any sort of sure bet whatsoever. I just, I just wrote it because I got this crazy idea that would not leave me alone. But to actually answer your question, um, people loved it. Like the first, the first run was over three weekends and our audience built steadily the whole time until we were sold out and turning people away and like being mad at at a cameraman who one of the someone's husband wanted to come film the thing. And we're like, that's nice. Couldn't you have come the first weekend when we weren't sold out? Blah. Um, and, and yeah, and it was in fact, and then, then, then Bumbershoot actually invited us to come, which, which is a little unusual. And then those audiences were sold out and they, they were really appreciative except the people who brought children to it. They didn't enjoy it as much. Mm. We tried to warn them, though. I mean, like, like we put a lot of signs out, and we told people they probably would not find this amusing. Uh, uh, the children would not, because it's not. There's the one scene with all the swearing. I basically put all the swearing into one scene, uh, but 
other than that, I just think children would find this show kind of boring. I mean, you know, it's, it's not, you know, yeah, it's mostly jokes based off of knowing Manos and other pop culture. So then after that, this is where the internet has its light side. So, so you know, compared to the, the pit of despair of the comment section, some of the comment sections are, you know, angels of goodness and light. Somewhere in 2012, I got a text from one of our original actors saying, oh my God, Topless Robot just posted an article about Manos. They were very complimentary about it. They were just like, this is great. How can we see this? And then a couple of other internet sort of geek sites picked up on it. Um, and the comments were very, how do I see this? You have to tour this. You have to do this again. And, and you know, it's like, well, golly. it's Because, you know, I work in theater. We're not used to people demanding to see our stuff. <laughs> kind of the other way around. And I was like, I have something people want to see. That's That's great. How do we make that work out? Um, which is where the idea for the Kickstarter DVD came from. Can you tell me a little bit about Plain Devil? Plain Devil um, was written and directed and produced by Tanya Atomic. She is a local filmmaker here in Seattle. And and she, calling her filmmakers kind of uh, selling her short because she's also a, a jewelry designer and a, a really good musician. And she just does all of these awesome things. Um, but... Plain Devil is her work, um, and she and I worked together in a theater about four or five years ago, and and we just always got along really well, and and we've actually overlapped a lot in in art spaces. Um, so yeah, so she had this um, film she wanted to do called Plain Devil, um, which was um, sort of John Waters esque idea of. Um, bad teen girls on the streets of the city, a girl gang, but they're massively incompetent at being bad basically um so so yeah so she asked me to be in that and she let me play um the nerd character um einstein vagine which may be the best name for a character i'm ever going to have so we shot that um with a couple the the other ladies in the gang are also friends of mine so that that was just a really fun thing to shoot to wandering around seattle trying to be bad quote unquote <laughs> She does camp really well, and she does horror really well, and sometimes she mixes them. Um, but yeah, this is this is one of her camp things, and it's 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 a fun time, I think. Now, is it true that you're you're working on the Manos Returns project as well? Um, yes, I, I have gotten pulled in on the Manos Returns project through uh, both Jackie and um, Tanya Atomic, actually, which is fun. They that Tanya Atomic, who directed Plain Devil is going to be directing Manos Returns. That's going to be perfect. Again, blend of camp and horror. I, I kind of can't think of anyone um, in the local area better to, to tackle that. Um, and, and Jackie's producing it and helming it, um, and so she pulled me in too. Um, yes, so I'm not allowed to say a whole lot about it, but I am allowed to say that the puppets will be in it somewhere. Is there a place for people to kind of keep up or learn more about Manos the Hands of Felt? So Manos the Hands of Felt has a Facebook page um, and a Twitter account, um, and I'm pretty active on both of those. Um, so, so yeah, for Facebook, it's just backslash Puppet Manos. On Twitter, I know it's at Puppet Manos um, because I did not want to make everyone spell out Manos the Hands of Felt. There's also a website, but I will admit I don't I don't play on the website as much as I should, um, mostly because right now we're not doing a new 
production of the show or anything. Um, not, not for the foreseeable future. Someday I'm sure it will happen again. And then uh, my puppet company, Vox Fabulae Puppets, has a website as well. And that, that's a way to keep up on stuff I'm doing that isn't just Monos. Right, we're back, and we're talking about Manos, the Hands of Fate, and we did get a chance to regroup with Ben Salave, the man who restored Manos with help in part by Synapse, or at least Synapse is doing the distribution of this new Blu-ray, and uh, God, it looks gorgeous. It has, it looks better than it has any right to look, is what I think. The thing that's amazing is I'm used to watching... Um at best, the um, Mystery Science Theater DVD released by, um, I think I have the Rhino edition. And it is, um, you know, obviously it's from a beta, you know, from TV. And so, okay, first it was uh, telecined badly, then it was put on TV in a beta form, and then it was put onto a DVD. So, uh, it, um, you know, the darks are specifically dark, even darker than they're, they should be. Uh, it's a little grainy, you know, and everything. But um, when you see this version, it's kind of amazing. Like, um, one of the things that I learned in the extras, when you watch the extras on the disc, is that... Um, and, and this really isn't that unusual because actually um, Pink Flamingos was was shot on sort of similar stock, was that it was shot on reversal. Now, what that means is, is basically it was shot on kind of like newsreel film. Uh, as a matter of fact, a cameraman who worked for the local TV station actually shot Manos. But what reversal is, is the the photochemical process is, is that it, it – shoots a negative, and then when it's chemically processed, it becomes a positive image. So you don't really have a negative. You just have this reversal image. And usually uh, reversal is done for, as I said, it's usually used as TV film uh, back in the day before they had video. So you would go out and you would shoot the, you know, the... The, the ribbon cutting or the fire or whatever, and then they would process it and then it would be shown on TV. So there was no need for a negative. They're, they didn't even care about a negative. So there's that. And then they shot it with an extremely low ASA rating. So it was shot on like 25 ASA film. That's the reason why the night scenes in here, which like a lot of the film outside is shot at night, look so damn dark. It like It's like whatever isn't lit, it falls off really quickly. But inside, with those interior shots and those close-ups on the faces, it looks really good. As a matter of fact, it looks even better than um, than I remember from the Mystery Science Theater screening. So it's um, it's interesting to see kind of how it got cleaned up in a way. And that was the one thing that that I actually wish they would have done on this disc that they didn't do. I was hoping for it in the um, the discussion on the restoration uh, extra was an actual section and, and criterion has a um often does this with 
their restorations where they'll do maybe it's two minutes, three minutes with just a soundtrack underneath where they'll take, um, you know, five, 10 seconds of one thing that they fixed up and they'll show you what it looked like before. And then they'll show you what it looked like after, or they'll put a line down the middle of the screen and show you, you know, this is how the color grading looked here to here. It would have been nice if, if uh, Ben and them had done a similar thing with this, because I'd really like to get in and sort of look at how, you know, the repair looked versus their original. But I think that would have also been an issue of them running the original through Telecine at some point and scanning it high, you know, at a high enough resolution and then going in and cleaning it up and then scanning it through again. So it was probably just a cost issue. It's probably part of the reason why they didn't do that. So with no further ado, let's go ahead and play this interview with Ben Sullivan, the man who helped restore, or who did restore, Manos, The Hands of Fate. So the last time we talked with you was a few years ago when you were still doing the Kickstarter to restore Manos. What was the process once you got funded what happened from there? Kind of catch me up with the rest of the story here. Well, from there, it was relatively straightforward. We had a good plan to follow. We uh, scanned the film in uh, 2K resolution, but on a very good scanner that I don't think we lost anything in the 16 millimeter to 2K transition. It's really a perfect representation of what that 16 millimeter looks like when projected. That was the goal. I think we stuck to it very well. No noise reduction for us, no. But uh, we just wanted to, as closely as possible, get it how it looked coming off the uh, editing bench. And although it's important to mention that the theatrical prints weren't made from our source. Our source was the work print. Theatrical prints would have been made from a negative, now lost. So uh, there are some slight differences, and I think it'll be interesting to see how people react. Oh, do you think there will be websites out there that are comparing, like, oh, we, we lost this shot in, in the uh, Blu-ray? Well, luckily, we're not missing any shots, but some shots are slightly longer, which makes them weirder. Sometimes uh, we didn't have enough material on either side of a cut to recreate dissolves, so uh, it's more of a hard cut, which may change the intent of certain scenes, but it's really the best we could manage. I already saw some people who uh, disliked the fact that previously in one shot, which started on the slate, that slate is now missing, but it's just a few frames that we did not have to work with. Anyway, that was part of the rationale for including the Grindhouse Edition, as Synapse calls it, which is really just a unrestored, uncut theatrical print from 1966, uh, and all the attendant uh, fading and garbage, but it is the film. It's still... Uh, the way audiences saw it. So I think it'll be nice to have both, um, which is a Blu-ray exclusive extra. Sorry, there just was not enough room on that DVD. What was it like working with Synapse on this project? Well, I got to say, I've always admired uh, Synapse's work. I mean, I had so many of their DVDs in college, uh, which I am now having to upgrade. Thanks a lot, Synapse. I don't know. I'm looking forward to that Blu-ray of Lamora, of course. Um, and they've got all the Argentos coming up. It's a very good year for them. You mentioned the Grindhouse version of the film that's on the Blu-ray. What are some of the extras? Because when we talked before, I don't think... Maybe there were some extras that were kind of like a gleam in your eye, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that it's not set at that moment. All right. Yeah, you're right. They were just a splinter of the mind's eye at the time. But uh, I, th 
think ultimately uh, one thing that I absolutely positively wanted, and I'm so glad we got, was a unadulterated audio commentary with uh, Jackie Ray Naaman Jones, a.k.a. Debbie, and her dad, Tom Naaman. Um, at the time, we didn't know if he would agree to be in the extra, as he is a pretty private person, but um, I was happy to sit down with him for interviews and also leave him and Jackie alone to record this uh, commentary, which is moderated by her. And it's the first time he's seen the movie in decades. So it's very casual and uh, very interesting to me uh, to be a fly on the wall hearing that. I imagine he had some uh, interesting things to say about Hal Warren while it was going on. It's funny. No one really knew Hal Warren that well, it seems. And I always just had the impression that this is the kind of thing that you make your friends do for you. But... um, uh, really, they were just all in community theater together, and uh, it was uh, that was kind of the extent of their knowledge of one another. Uh, it's it's interesting. It's like um, how Warren always played things pretty close to the vest. Like so, no one really questioned his desire to make a movie or his ability to make that movie, which maybe should have been questioned, but. Um, I don't know. Someone once pointed out that um, the $19,000 they had as a budget would amount to about 156000 today, give or take. Um, I think you can make a better movie for that money even then. But, uh, you know, I wasn't the one making it. Hal Warren was the one making it. When did you first meet Tom and Jackie Naaman? Let me see. I met them first over the internet, or rather Jackie first over the internet, before this whole process even started. When I was just showing people online um, scans that I made on my desktop scanner from the work print, carefully, I might add. But um, she, you know, we just got to meet each other over Facebook, interestingly enough. Now she's got a bigger Facebook presence, and she enjoys chatting with people, answering questions, um, sharing the artwork she makes. And um, we didn't meet in person until the screening of the uh, Restoration at the El Paso Plaza Classic Film Festival in uh, 2013. What was that like for you? I mean, here you are working with her little girl image so often, and then finally meeting this woman now that you've uh, seen so many times on film. Well, it was a relief to hear her real voice and know that it was (laughs) a prematurely aged Benjamin Button voice. What did she think of you working on this project? She seemed happy with it, and um, she saw my credentials and she seemed to trust me to restore it and i'm happy about that she was a great ally throughout this entire process and um early on we made the decision to uh make a t-shirt where the proceeds would go to her and her dad so they could finally get paid for the movie um that is the master t-shirt which looks a lot like the misfits t-shirt suspiciously much but it's the master's face who did you work with when it came to some of these other special features, things like uh, shooting the the Fate of Manos featurette or the um, the Restoring the oh. Hands of Fate featurette? Hands, the Fate of Manos, you can blame me for that title. Truly, the extras were structured as follows. You know, Synapse wanted uh, perhaps an editor that they'd worked with that was suggested, but um, I chose uh daniel griffith because we're both from the same hometown chattanooga tennessee and he actually had approached me very early on because he had done a lot of the extras for the uh shot factory mystery science theater dvds but he hadn't gotten to do one for manos because they just took uh, hotel torgo for that disc and 
he wanted to take his own crack at it. He proposed this um, outlandish documentary, which treated the movie as if it had been a massive influential success and, and ran with that premise the entire way through. And that never got made, but it definitely impressed me enough that, um, that I wanted to work with him later. In essence, I shot all of the interviews, immediately gave him the raw footage. He took his time with it and made it what he made it. And, uh, and you know, it's a very good package with the same kind of tenor throughout. And he's very good at keeping things brisk. Yeah, everyone has been happy with the documentary so far. Um, I hate to see people say we played down the Mystery Science Theater connection because that's not true at all. If anything, I just don't want to seem like I'm capitalizing on it beyond all reason, but we all know why we're here. So, uh, yeah, it's just that after certain legal entanglements with the Rift Tracks live show, we could not get those interviews. It was a real shame. Maybe in the future we could, but uh, put something online. But uh, that's about all we got. Well, actually, my next question was about Rift Tracks. Did you have anything to do with the version of Manos that they use at their live shows now? Yep. It's important to mention that there's only two theatrical prints remaining of Manos in the entire world. The other one is in New Zealand. This one's mine. And um, it's the same print that became the Grindhouse version although they applied some color correction to it and uh, did some noise reduction on the sound, it's the same version you saw at the Rift Tracks live event. When did this first really start for you? When did you think to yourself, I can restore this print of Manos? Well, not long after I was sharing screenshots, and then archivists were getting in touch with me, and, and people I knew in post-production were saying, oh, you want to do this, I'm on board. I realized I knew I was, as a cameraman, I had some good post-production connections and a decent amount of knowledge, and I used the opportunity to enhance my knowledge and uh, learn a few new tricks, and uh, it became clear, why shouldn't I do this? Because um, I've always admired uh, Bob Murawski over at Grindhouse Releasing. You might know that he is a Oscar-winning film editor. He made... Let's say he worked on the Spider-Man movies, the the Raimi ones. He worked on uh, the Hurt Locker, etc. But he also had a hand in releasing a lot of great cult films to disc. And I thought, well, if he can multitask like that, I probably can manage, given the opportunity. I'm glad I had the opportunity. Uh, It was the very end of 2012 when I uh, launched the Kickstarter campaign. So kind of months before that, I was doing my homework and, of course, trying to find... uh, legitimate means to fund the restoration because I wanted it to be not a case of we neglected to to explore every avenue. Like I pursued grants actually to restore the movie. I probably shouldn't name them all here, but at the time the, in Texas, there was no um, proper structure for restoring a Texan movie, although they do have uh, an archive. It, it's a very good archive. It's mainly meant for ephemera and home movies and news films from Texas and uh, We were sort of outside of that umbrella and certainly outside their budget. They operate on a very small budget. But it was valuable connections for the documentary process and uh, later on to have the Texas Archive of the Moving Image. You can actually see the outtakes from Manos on that website now. I don't know how they got them, but I'm glad they have them. So what have you learned in the last three years? It seems like not only have you probably learned some technical lessons, but also just some life lessons as well. 
clearly I didn't learn too many because I'm planning to do this again. But as far as that goes, uh, I really want to. Um, I learned that, that restoring a film has a mystique about it that maybe it shouldn't have because um, it's very possible to do it on an independent budget. And uh, particularly as far as public domain films go, they have no one really caretaking for them. I think the public can step into that role remarkably well, given the opportunity. Now, I read a little bit about some controversy with Manos uh, from the uh, oh. Playboy article. Which uh, I was amazed that I, you know, I, I picked up this magazine and there were actually articles in it. But uh, this was a very interesting what? one. Yeah, yeah, I know there were pretty soon there, there only will be articles. That's bizarre. That is so bizarre. That's our fault. <laughs> you overshadowed the nudes. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: the author, the writer, Jake Rawson, is uh, a very friendly guy. Very nice. But he did insist on perpetuating the idea that there's a curse on this film. And I think that's what did it. If you mention the curse, oh, shit, I just mentioned it. But anyway, about that article, it was, um, the interview with me, at least, was conducted, oh, I want to say nearly two years ago. So it's interesting to see how things have and have not progressed since that time. Now, are you involved at all with this uh, sequel to Manos, Manos Returns? I'm not involved, but I'm definitely I'm definitely cheering them on because uh, a lot of people have threatened to make the sequel. I think they can actually do it. I think it's appropriate that uh, that Jackie is taking on some of the responsibilities that her dad once had. It's a nice way to go full circle. But moreover, I really like the filmmaker, Tonya Atomic. She's got the exact right attitude, I feel. So you mentioned that you were going to be embarking on another restoration project. Can you tell me about that? Well, that would be another movie that was recovered in the same uh, auction lot as Manos, and that was um, The Atomic Brain, a.k.a. Monstrosity, directed by Joseph V. Maselli. It's a very interesting guy to me because he's a, sort of the father of cinematography education. Like, on my bookshelf right now, I'm staring right at it, is his book, The Five Seas of Cinematography. That's a textbook that was... It released in 64, so, um, or was it 65? It was released the year after Monstrosity came out, interestingly enough. And it is still in use today to teach cinematography. He was a member of the ASC, of course. He contributed to the ASC manual, uh, which is a great technical manual that we constantly are having to rebuy because it gets updated every couple of years. And um, he did a lot of things in that area, but as far as his work goes, he worked mostly in B-movies, and he taught a lot of guys like Vilmos Sigmund that really changed the field. It's interesting to see him step into the director's role, although admittedly he stepped into this director's role in 1958. He shot the movie in 58, or at least most of it, and then the money ran out, the producer like kind of shut it down, then later on finished it up in his own way, so... Uh, it's interesting to separate the shots that Maselli did with uh, the shots that some anonymous Joker did. You can really tell a difference. It's an interesting movie. I think it's kind of significant in just who made it and when it was made. And really, a lot of cinematographers in you know that mid-century time of the 40s to the 60s made interesting movies when given the chance. This is definitely one of them. It's a crazy brain-swapping movie. Um, there's this lovely old lady who's chewing the scenery. She wants to put her brain into a sexy younger body. 
things don't really go as planned. Uh, a woman gets her brain swapped with a cat. Then uh, huh. eats a mouse. Um, there's like a wolf man running around for some reason. I don't know. There's a lot of influences visible from other movies, like I Walked with a Zombie, but they're kind of like half-baked, which I think we can attribute to the whole running out of money thing. Anyway, it's an interesting movie. It made for an interesting episode of Mystery Science Theater, but the movie doesn't actually look as dreary as it appears on Mystery Science Theater. It's actually like razor-sharp black-and-white photography. We have the original camera negative. With a source this good and technology having improved in a few years, we can do this restoration more quickly and more cheaply than we were able to do Manos. Manos really needed a lot of help urgently, and this one is a situation of We've got such a great source to work with. No excuse not to. I've seen some of the scans that you've posted on um, your Facebook for the Atomic Brain, and it looks gorgeous. It's really shocking just how representing that grayscale as high def can do is going to make a difference. It's also worth mentioning those screenshots don't have it, but the film was shot for a widescreen, and we can finally present it in that aspect ratio and look pretty damn good in the process, which... uh, as much as the Something Weird DVD release that movie has been the best one so far, it's um, been hamstrung by its resolution and uh, just the sources they used, and I think we can surpass it and make it worthwhile. From what I understand, Manos was in the, f- the public domain. Now, when you go and you do a restoration on something that's in the public domain, do you now have some sort of rights to it, or is this one of those things where people can now freely bootleg it just because they're dicks? That's where things get hopelessly complicated, because copyright law is hopelessly complicated. You will often notice copyright notices on public domain films where, let's say, a pan-and-scan version is done. That's because, oddly enough, the pan-and-scan version is considered a... uh, enough of a difference to qualify as a derivative work, or it involved some artistic uh, license being taken. Through re-editing, you can get yourself a copyright. Through uh, reframing, you can get yourself a copyright. And uh, by digitally changing the credits, for instance, I've seen that done. I don't know. Colorization also is one of those things that qualifies. Honestly, it's one of those things where you have to submit for a certificate and see if they approve it. If you do, you have a wonderful bit of insurance. And here's where we get a little complicated. Because there are enough editorial differences in the work print itself, we were kind of creating something out of something that was unpublished. And that gave us enough leeway. Also, the substantial amount of restoration work. Also, having to digitally recreate the credits as we did, even as close as they are to the actual ones. It... uh, gave us enough to copyright that if you were to slice out everything that is not copyrightable, you would not have enough. The uh, actual Grindhouse edition is not copyrightable. It's public domain, but the restoration itself is. So when it comes to the Atomic Brain, are you going to kind of follow the same steps that you did before as far as like doing a Kickstarter for this and you know working on the, the special features and all that, or are you going to take a different path this time? There's a couple differences. Um, For one thing, if I can't get traditional funding for it, and believe me, I'm trying just as I tried the first time. I like to do my due diligence on that. If I have to crowdfund it, I will likely self-distribute it. It will save uh, a bit of time, and I'm expecting less demand for this than for Manos, but just enough to justify its existence. That means self-distribution is probably the way to go. And I'd probably emphasize digital distribution 
as well, which I wasn't able to do this time around um, because it's progressed so much. And everyone's got faster internet than they did a few years ago, I hope. And what's more, we have 4K TVs starting to exist, and I want to come up with a way for those people to watch it in its intended fashion. I didn't really encounter much pushback from Kickstarter itself, even when I went way over my ETA. Um, no matter who was threatening me legally, I mean, it's funny. I know uh, that Phil Francis contacted Kickstarter, probably, or tried to, um, to get me shut down or that sort of thing. But I never heard a thing about it. <laughs> so uh, I only heard about it after the fact or anecdotally. I'm not sure if I remember who that is. Oh, that's um, fake New Zealand Torgo from the Playboy article. Oh, okay. I don't know why they didn't insist on using his real name, as I do, but he was an interesting guy. Uh, he was probably not the guy to successfully make a sequel like uh, the new crew is. And um, I could have probably predicted it wasn't going to work, because he told me first off that his script was over 300 pages long. Uh, in case you don't know how to read a script, it's... it's um, that's definitely getting into three and a half hour territory. Yeah, it's a it's a real Bollywood uh, who to thunk it. Now the Blu-rays are out. I saw all the packages uh, that you were mailing out. Still waiting for mine, but I'm they're out there somewhere in the mail. Yep. What's that feel like for you now? If you knew how boxed in I was in my apartment when all the uh, discs arrived to me, I think you'll know it's it's a lot more uh, breathable in here now. Yeah, and it's exciting to uh, be hearing people's feedback already. I didn't know what to expect from such technically-minded review sites as DVD Beaver, but they really seem to like it. So are there still screenings of this going on across the country? I'm still uh, putting out a few as it as the requests come. I mean, basically, theaters kind of have to contact you for this sort of thing. Although I've done a bit of outreach in accordance with uh, backer requests. Because let's say... Uh, Got a backer in Philadelphia and reach out to Philomoka and they like it. Philomoka did screen it a while back. Is there a place where people can uh, go and see where screenings are happening, kind of keep up with the latest and greatest Manos news? Definitely the news comes first to the Facebook page. That's uh, Manos in HD or, or was it Manos the Restoration on Facebook? I don't know. Basically, you can provide a link to that, I'm sure. But um, the website itself, Manos in HD, is... Uh, going to start to have more updates to that effect. I know we're cooking up a 50th anniversary screening in El Paso, or at least we're talking about it. I would really love to do that because it's El Paso, man. You know, they have a special connection to the film and they've been a great ally during this process. Thank you so much, Ben. I'm glad that we were able to do this again. <laughs> My pleasure.
Solvay, the the man who um, we all gave money to, at least I did, um, and I think you did too, Mike, uh, during that Kickstarter in order to restore Manos. Yes, I did. Gave my hard-earned cash for a what I feel is, was, and forever shall be a good cause. And we got our names in the end. I, I saw my name in the end credits there, so that was kind of nice. Very cool. I didn't stick around to the end credits. I need to go back and, and check that out. Now, you had a chance to watch the extras. My disc just arrived in the mail yesterday, so I didn't get a chance to see anything. So what are what's going on with the extras? Well, the extras, uh, you get three documentaries. One is Hands, The Fate of Manos. One is Restoring Manos, The Hands of Fate. And the other is Felt, The Puppet, Hands of Fate. So you get... Um, basically, as you hear, uh, the little documentary with uh, Jackie Neiman and Tom Neiman, the master, and a few other people uh, who were there sort of talking about their experiences and then also Ben on camera talking about the things he's learned in the process of interviewing people and doing the research on sort of how Manos all came to be. The uh, felt documentary, you get uh, Rachel Jackson who we just talked to, talking about um, why and wherefores and a little bit of uh, the onstage with that. And then the restoration, obviously, is sort of pretty self-explanatory. It's mostly Ben talking about what elements they had, what they had to do, what they were up against in uh, putting that together. It's an interesting contradiction. We still have the driving scenes at the beginning, you know, we still have the shaky camera and everything and the wonky zooms and all that kind of stuff. But now it looks great. <laughs> so it's like we see now more of what the director intended uh, and we can actually see more of what's going on screen. But at the same time, we can still see just how wrongheaded so much of this stuff is. It, I can't remember which comedian is that always says, you know, you can't fix stupid, but I love it. You know, it just, it looks so nice and it makes me appreciate this film even more for those weird mistakes. You know, just knowing that, you know, the, everything looks good. And this, I feel like if I was sitting in a theater when it first unspooled, this is what it might've looked like. And I still try to put myself like, I, I don't know, I, I know probably unspooled in a theater, but I always like picture like a, um, Knights of Columbus place with like all the metal chairs laid out or whatever and you know like people there going wow this is really good hal uh excellent way to go yeah it does have that sort of um you know didn't my garage kind of feel which which isn't bad i mean one of my favorite you know low budget films of all time as you know we've talked about it on the show before is a guy who shot a remake of first blood a, a adaptation of first blood in his 200 square foot apartment in new york city for 100 bucks i mean it's that doesn't necessarily mean anything i mean to me budget isn't that big a deal it's more like how you're able to bring it across um which is more important this you know as we talked about on the first episode it is pretty inept um there's certain things that you can appreciate it's quotable it's ridiculous um, and, and I think that what we were talking about in terms of why a cult film 
that lasts. Uh, those are some of the things that they need to have. I mean, it has to be quirky. It has to be quotable. There has to be a reason for you to want to sit there and subject yourself to it. Um, there's a lot of bad movies in the world, but not all of them um, are remembered. No, and this one is definitely remembered. And, you know, I always cast my mind back. I used to get those um, newsletters from Mystery Science Theater. You know, how it, you would sign up for the fan club. They would flash the address every episode, and you could write off and join up with the fan club and everything. And I used to get those. I can't remember what the names of the, the newsletters were. And, but they were talking in one about how they had the um, parade of Torgos at one of the Mystery Science Theater conventions. And I can only like imagine how amazing that must have been to see all these people dressed up as Torgo. You know, the other thing I remember, and this must have been in the early days of the Internet because it was like that GeoCities kind of design. I swear that there was a website that was dedicated to the film, and all it was was like a Torgo character, like done sort of a little bit better than those like 8-bit, you know what I'm talking about? Right. Movies. And it's just him walking just randomly all over the screen while the theme plays in the background. And you would just go to the website and that's all it would do. It was just, you know, and he would just sort of like walk all over the screen. That was it. There's there's something comforting in the Torgo theme. <laughs> you know, that's another aspect of this that I think why it continues to be a cult item is it has just idiosyncratic stuff. It just really, you, you kind of go, it's wrong, but for some reason it works. I, I can't tell you why it works. I guess I could. I would just have to spend a lot more time researching it, but it, it just shouldn't. It just shouldn't work. <laughs> Nobody, you know, like it beat the odds, you know, when you think about it, because we're talking about it 49 years later. And there's a lot of films that were made same year that we don't necessarily remember or talk about or, you know, share, share stories about or have this great feeling about when we think about it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the one thing that I, often think about is this film was made before sort of the rise in cults. If you think about it, it's kind of ahead of the curve because when we talk about sort of cult and Satanism and all of that stuff that, that we grew up with, you know, the satanic panic of the eighties and all of that stuff, a lot of that was post Manson. And the only thing that I can think of where you had a character that would have been anything like the master as an inspiration would have been the fact that the year Manos came out was in April of that year, the founding of the church of Satan by Anton LaVey. And then before that you had, and if you were hip to sort of, you know, out there culture, um, maybe you would have known about Aleister Crowley. So that is all, you know, but that was turn of the century, you know, up into the forties. So, and, and I don't know how much of a mainstream presence Crowley really was uh, to a guy who was a insurance salesman in El Paso, Texas. So it's you never know. He might have been right there. You know, he he, he might have been uh, quoting quoting the man, reading the books, shaving his head. <laughs> Do what thou will is uh, the whole law, I guess. 
You know, Man of the Hands of Fate, as we said, this restored version is now available on Blu-ray and DVD. The Blu-ray has uh, the full package, while the DVD has the restored movie and documentary extras, but not the so-called Grindhouse version. And that, um, I think Ben talked about it, but the Grindhouse version that is on the Blu-ray, I believe, actually might be the uncleaned-up version. So maybe you could have done that restoration I was talking about uh, comparison, but I guess they decided not to do that. They didn't want to uh, try to eat Criterion's lunch, as it were. Uh, you know, Synapse does a really nice job, and to be honest, I'm very excited about the fact that Don May and his team over there have gotten their hands on three classics of Dario Argento, and they are supposed to be cleaning those up as we speak. And you know... When it comes to Synapse, he will not put out anything that is subpar. So I thought that the restorations and the work that Anchor Bay and Blue Underground did on those movies was great. I can't even imagine what Don May is going to do with that stuff. Yeah, having seen the uh, stills that he's posted over the last, like, I don't know, year, year and a half or whatever, I'm just like, every shot is a work of art, you know, and I'm just really excited and the funny thing is that don may does all this stuff completely colorblind nobody knows that really but completely colorblind he's actually blind not just colorblind of it most people didn't know that right he he kind of feels the screen and he can tell exactly how good it looks he has his monitor set up so that he can put his hand on there and feel the color values through periods of heat and everything. It's kind of like Rocky Dennis explaining colors to Laura Dern in, uh, in Mask. Yeah, he's kind of the uh, the Helen Keller of film restoration. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> God, I think we've seen the Helen Keller of film restoration. <laughs> <laughs> and it is not on May, thank goodness. <laughs> No, we're just joking. We're just making really bad jokes over here. But seriously, like, go into your wallet and take every dollar you have and just mail it to Synapse and tell them to uh, keep doing the work. Yeah, God, I can't wait for that Suspiria disc. I'm really looking forward to that. Thanks, everybody who came on the show. Ms. Naiman, Ms. Jackson, Mr. Salovey, and thank you for listening.
get the, the luggage. You cannot stay. The master would not uh, approve. You cannot stay. The master would not uh, approve. The master would not uh, approve. this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.